bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. Hey everybody, it's been a lot going on since the last episode. So kind of the big leading news right now in the springtime is a new scientific paper that was published in the Journal of Conservation Science and Practice called Habitat Loss Accelerates for Endangered Woodland Caribou in Western Canada. Uh, It's been written by a group of scientists, um, very well-known scientists. One of them was Dr. Rob Soroya, who Curtis and I actually had on the Hunter Conservationist podcast two years ago, I think was episode uh, two if you wanted to go all the way back to to that episode. Uh, Anyways, this paper has concluded that the endangered caribou herds in Western Canada, uh, British Columbia, and Alberta have lost twice as much habitat that they've gained in the last 12 years. So in other words, all of the conservation and recovery efforts that have been going on over the last 12 years, including some habitat protection and restoration, has not kept pace with the amount of caribou habitat that's being logged, mined, cleared for oil and gas exploration, or from wildfires. So between 2000 and 2018, the actual loss of endangered caribou habitat, the authors say, is actually accelerating. Uh, So year over year, more caribou habitat is being cleared. So this kind of uh, paints an interesting um, narrative or or conclusions on top of the controversial wolf control programs, which other studies have shown that they've been helping, that wolf Wolf control, uh, moose population reductions, and maternal penning have been shown to cause some positive increases in some of the endangered caribou herds. However, this new paper said our findings support the idea that short-term recovery actions such as predator reductions and translocations will likely just delay caribou extinction in the absence of well-considered habitat management. It's clear that unless the cumulative impacts of land uses are effectively addressed through planning and management actions that consider human and natural disturbances, we will fail to achieve self-sustaining woodland caribou populations across much of North America. So, you know, I read read another news story from the um, government's lead... Uh, person, biologist for the caribou recovery program speaking about this new paper. And it actually said like, you know, that the results were interesting, but not surprising. So it's very disheartening um, to see our governments continue to, you know, say they're doing stuff and throwing money um, at caribou recovery and uh, doing different types of things, but at the end of the day, still out there logging and mining and oil and gas exploration and all sorts of things that are basically accelerating the loss of uh, caribou habitat. So 
Um, governments are just definitely not doing a good job. Uh, one of the big criticisms uh, that's still out there is the lack of the federal government's leadership on using the Federal Species at Risk Act to step in with the big hammer and actually protect caribou uh, in Alberta and and Northern British Columbia. So, <clears throat> hey, this is just another one of these things that you got to just stay on top of your elected officials, um, overwrite them, uh, write the federal ministers and just say it time, time is now time to start setting aside some large tracts of land, uh, in the woodland caribou, um, endangered herds across, uh, Western Canada. As well, another big story uh, coming out of Alberta, a study released last month uh, that's been looking at the recovery of the grizzly bears in Alberta. So the last time grizzly bears were hunted in Alberta was in 2005. Um, they were roughly issuing about 70 permits a year in Alberta, and there was about 10 uh, bears a year taken in Alberta and then the season was shut down and bears were identified as uh, threatened and and um, that so that sort of kicked in some provincial level um, um, recovery initiatives so there's a new study that's been been released that showed that the grizzly bear populations in Alberta are actually um, doing quite well and and recovering and so apparently um, there will be a panel that will be reviewing the grizzly bear's provincial status as threatened, and that may get um, changed. Some of the management zones, grizzly bear management zones in uh, Alberta, they actually saw a, a, a doubling of the grizzly bear population. So they're now estimating between 850 and 973 grizzly bears in the province. If I recall correctly, uh, scientists were saying in the original kind of um, recovery initiative when grizzly bears were um, listed as threatened in Alberta that uh, they needed, the target was kind of around about 1,000 bears. Um, sort of as as one of the benchmarks of of their recovery. So this kind of caused uh, when this this study came out, it kind of caused a bit of a um, uh, controversy in Alberta because, of course, all of the rhetoric about reinstituting a grizzly bear hunt um, sort of flared up in the conversations there. The um, one of the Alberta ministers. Um, made some comments about um, if the grizzly bears um, are their stat, their provincial status is changed from threatened, that the province will reconsider opening a limited lottery-based hunting season. So that got people all fired up uh, over that and challenging that, and of course, like a bunch of um, you know the rhetoric started to kind of come out. And by rhetoric, I mean people were out in the public discourse and the media and stuff trying to discredit hunters, um, kind of going back to this whole narrative about, you know, how uh, immoral grizzly bear hunters were and, um, you know, trophy hunting and this whole type of discussion again. <clears throat> there was even, you know, this this started to kind of like sort of come to light uh, late last fall a little bit. And I recall reading uh, an article recently by one of Alberta's um, kind of like 
you know, provincial favorite um, conservationists that the media always goes to, um, former superintendent of Banff National Park, author of a bunch of conservation books and bear books, um, Kevin Bontegum. And uh, I was actually really disappointed uh, in an article that he published last October, uh, you know, kind of around the grizzly bear recovery strategy and the interest that hunters were starting to express, you know, the possibility of maybe having a hunt hunt back again. And just really negative um, derogatory comments kind of made towards the hunting community. In fact, I think um, he actually referred to um, hunters as nimrods um, because people were expressing an interest in, in hunting grizzly bears again. So, you know, to me, when we're talking about grizzly bear uh, recovery, uh, we have targets, we're using science, um, and we're looking at future management options. I believe hunting and the values of hunters towards hunting grizzly bears should be included in that discussion rather than all of this jockeying to try to um, marginalize hunters in this discussion. Um, hunters have an interest in grizzly bear conservation and they also have some interest in some limited opportunities to hunt them and I don't think that's uh, wrong. Um, I would actually support, um, you know, a science-based grizzly bear hunt in Alberta, uh, when the species reaches a self-sustaining, um, recovery level. Uh, I do believe British Columbia, um, is clearly positioned to be able to, um, reinstitute a grizzly bear hunt based on, um, uh, the science that was being used before. And, you know, the thing is, is, uh, my opinion is looking forward, in Canada to the future possibility of a grizzly bear hunt and the non-hunting public and anti-grizzly bear hunters sort of going back into the past, the past practices and ethos around grizzly bear hunting, there's no doubt about it, um, didn't sit right with the non-hunting public in Canada. And my opinion is, is the future does not have to, to emulate the past. And I do believe that if hunters have values of hunting grizzly bears in the future in Western Canada, it's completely up to everybody to determine what that future might look like, what grizzly bear hunting might actually stand for, um, how science would be used, uh, you know, all these sorts of things. There's, there's to me, there's the opportunity to paint a completely different future and ethos around the opportunity of being able to hunt and harvest a few grizzly bears that uh, are in populations that are doing well in Western Canada. So uh, it's just unfortunate the, when hunters are still expressing um, their interests and their values and beliefs and still wanting to be at the table to talk about conservation and recovery that the immediate reaction of of those that are involved in this that aren't hunters are to try to demonize and marginalize um, hunters. I just think if we're going to be in the recovery phase for 10 more years, whatever it happens to be, um, hunters should be part of that. Hunters should be part of understanding where grizzly bear recovery is at, what the science is saying, 
what the objectives are, what needs to be done, what the next steps are. And uh, rather than just trying to exclude hunters from that, we're always talking about social values and inclusive and big tent conservation. Um, but for some folks, that is the way as long as that big tent doesn't include hunters. And I just don't think that that's right uh, in any discussion about a wildlife population. So as you know from previous episodes in British Columbia, there was a big controversy this winter about um, some wolves uh, actually going all the way back to last year uh, about a wolf that was a famous wolf, Takaya, whatever its name was, uh, around Victoria that was translocated and ended up being harvested by a hunter. And then there was a couple wolves taken by a trapper around um, Sook on Vancouver Island this year. Uh, kind of caused a big big stir, still kind of, you know, stuff, fallout from, from all of those things. So the city council of the community of Sook has written a letter to the Minister of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations calling for a moratorium on wolf hunting and for more scientific studies. Four more city councils on the West Coast called the West Coast Councils, which were the community of Machosan, Highlands, View Royal, and Colwood, have all penned um, a petition or a letter or whatever you want to call it, a resolution um, that's uh, gone into the Minister of Forest Lands and Natural Resource Operations, whose portfolio covers wildlife management, hunting and trapping, um, asking for an end to um, wolf hunting and trapping uh, until more studies can be done. Um, some of the language that I've seen in in the stories around um, the council's resolutions are that the resolution argues that the current free-for-all recreational hunting policy needs to be re-examined. So kind of inflammatory language uh, being used there. And you know, this is all happening over three wolves. Uh, the wolf population, as I understand it, on Vancouver Island is relatively healthy. Um, it's increasing. They estimate around three to four hundred uh, wolves on Vancouver Island. I've dug, dug into the amount of wolves that are taken by um, hunters on Vancouver Island, and it doesn't even come close um, to what other scientific studies say would be levels that would cause population decline. So from a um, conservation perspective of harvesting uh, wolves on Vancouver Island, it's not a threat to the population. This is more around um, the ethical moral, you know, dilemma or debate around wolf hunting and trapping. But for these city councils to push this onto the province as a priority, as something they're trying to get onto the minister's agenda to actually address is, in my opinion, incredibly frustrating. As I said in the previous um, you know, episode that I did talking a little bit about this, is when it comes to wolf conservation in BC, yeah, there's some social discussions around, you know, ethics and, and morals and stuff, but they certainly are not a priority conservation species in the province that needs to have a whole bunch of dedicated 
money and resources and scientific studies being poured into them when they're doing quite well across the province and nothing as far as incidental kills, trapping or hunting is even close to being in the order of magnitude of impacting populations. So to me, if we're going to be putting money into anything to study wildlife populations, municipalities in this province, if they're going to get involved in this game, they need to start advocating for things that are really conservation priorities. So here in British Columbia, the budget for natural resource management, so all the agencies within the government of BC that are involved in managing the environment, fish, wildlife, habitat, and the natural resources, those ministries are all experiencing declining budgets, including wildlife management in BC. For the last 30 or 40 years, the budget that's being allocated to the management of wildlife and natural resources is incrementally going down every single year. Conversely, every single other budget in every single other area of British Columbia is going up. And in fact, it's going up at, a, at an incredibly steep rate. Hunters and trappers and anglers and guide outfitters in this province, based on a study in 2018, contributed $350 million in taxes to the province of BC. All of that money goes into general revenue. The fish and wildlife, the wildlife management budget in the province of BC is around $34, $35 million. So if you want to look at it, hunters are paying for wildlife management tenfold over, or they're paying for it, plus they're putting about $325 million into other areas, other budgets of the province, which includes municipal budgets. Wolves are definitely not a conservation concern and priority, uh, a conservation priority in in BC, yet these municipalities are saying they want more studies. They want studies done on wolves. And they're not willing to pay for it. My impression is they're expecting the province to make this a priority and pay for it. If any type of study is going to be done on wolves, which there are wolf studies, If the government doesn't have the money to do it because of tight budgets in natural resource management, they might try to ask for the money to come out of the Habitat Conservation Trust Foundation, which is hunters and trappers and anglers and guide money to pay for wolf studies on Vancouver Island, which are certainly not a conservation priority. So if these municipalities want more studies, if they want to step outside of their legislation, the Municipal Act, which gives them authority within the municipal boundaries and start to get involved in natural resource management, then take it out of your taxpayer's base and start paying for it. But you know, when I look at these West Coast communities, And of all the things that they could be advocating for and pushing the government to start doing a better job on putting more money into natural resource management, I look at the the collapse of the salmon stocks in the Pacific Ocean and how these communities probably socially, economically benefited from the, the, the amazing salmon fishery that the West Coast had for, for hundreds of years. 
So why, why are they not making the priority of restoring salmon populations? Because it's, it's directly related to their communities. What about species like black-tailed deer on Vancouver Island? I mean, all of these communities have hunters in them who live there, who have jobs that are out hunting. They're bringing dollars back into these communities. Black-tailed deer on Vancouver Island. In the 1960s, the hunter harvest of black-tailed deer was about 20 to 25,000 deer a year. Today, it's around 4,000. The decline is due to the decline in the black-tailed deer population on Vancouver Island, which most experts are saying is caused by logging. Black-tailed deer need old-growth logging, and there's so much old-growth logging on Vancouver Island that the black-tailed deer populations are have been dramatically cut, you know, um, more than half, like 75% they've been reduced. Yet, I don't see those municipalities expressing a concern and passing a resolution onto the minister to say you need to do something to protect black-tailed deer. You know, there's one of the single largest sources of wildlife human conflict in this province takes place in communities. And there's a tremendous amount that communities, in my opinion, across British Columbia are not doing, they have powers under the municipal acts to fix a lot of these wildlife human conflicts. But from what I've seen, a lot of these municipalities don't want to take responsibility for human wildlife conflicts in their communities. And they want the cost of the problem or the problem to be fixed by the province because they're saying, Hey, they're not our wildlife. Well, these human wildlife conflicts that are going on in communities across the province are eating up the vast majority of the conservation officer's time dealing with urban wildlife problems. So why doesn't the municipalities like the four that I just mentioned here on Vancouver Island do something more proactive other than, than sterilizing deer, um, you know, like one of the communities was doing a couple of years ago, giving them birth control. It's like they need to do something more because the conservation officer's time is coming out of provincial budgets, um, which is declining. And these municipalities just can't sit around and ask for the world and not be willing to fix the problems within their own municipalities or help pay for some of this stuff. Um, it's just, it's just, it's insane. The chaos that's been created in wildlife management in BC over three wolves over the last couple of years on, you know, on the West coast and how that's really created what I think is kind of a warped sense of what conservation priorities are in BC because wolves are this sexy, um, trigger word that, keeps coming up in the media and getting every everybody fired up and in this case municipalities are actually demanding the government do something so hey man if you live in these municipalities on vancouver island you need to talk to your your city councils your elected officials and and maybe express your concerns you know about them getting involved and trying to push the uh the province towards um spending money on doing scientific research on on wolves on Vancouver Island and start putting it back into things like black-tailed deer and 
and salmon recovery and these these sorts of things. So, um, yeah, get involved. A little bit of a call to action there if you happen to live uh, on the south part of the island. So in uh, Alberta in uh, mid-April, there was a uh, hiker in southern Alberta uh, encountered a uh, couple of grizzly bears and kind of panicked and was trying to get away. And I guess guess the encounter was pretty close. Um, they said the one report I said was uh, within 12 meters. And this person kind of scrambled up the hill and twisted their ankle and ended up um, calling 911. Uh, the helicopter that was actually dispatched to the 911 call actually left. Um, from my community in southern BC and Cranbrook um, because they just scoop pop over top of the the Rocky Mountains and they were right there and picked up this hiker and uh, so that was kind of all all over the news in in mid-April you know and again um, the media went to um, their beloved uh, conservationist former superintendent of Banff National Park um, to make some comments about this incident Um, that was you know, the fellow Kevin Van Tegum that I mentioned before. And uh, there's a whole article published on what his thoughts were on this event. And uh, so one, he said he was bothered by the way the media sensationalized the coverage of this bear encounter um, and that they were making it look like that the bears were like more mean and aggressive than, than they really are and creating this fear um, of grizzly bears is what leads um, to their their deaths in some of these confrontations over humans. But he also kind of went on to, to, to criticize this hiker and for calling 911 and, and, and criticizing the hiker by saying it's unlikely that he was ever in danger and that the hiker overreacted out of his own fear. And I'm like, well, if you reacted out of your own fear and your fear is your own fear, then yeah, but you know, that's legitimate, but it was being, being criticized that this hiker shouldn't have called 911 to come and get rescued because he was fearing over this close encounter with a grizzly bear. And you know what? My opinion on anybody that's had any kind of an encounter with a bear, uh, you know, unless you were actually there, unless it was happening to you, no matter how the person reacted, what they did, I feel nobody has a right to judge another person in how they react to an encounter with a grizzly bear in the wild and whether they fear for their own life or not or whatever their actions were, I don't feel you can judge someone else because you don't know how you would react in those situations. And at the end of the day, whatever a person does or they feel they need to do to protect their own life is justified in my mind. And if this person thought that within a few seconds his life might have been in danger and scrambled to safety and called 911, get on you. So in northern British Columbia, moose populations in um, the western portion of the Peace region, northeastern BC, have been um, declining. Their moose numbers have dropped from around 3,000 in 2005 to approximately 1,000 animals when they were counted in, in 2018. 
So there's been a study ongoing since about 2016 monitoring moose in what's called the Williston Reservoir Watershed, which is in northeastern BC. And that study just wrapped up here recently. And they in the study, they had 30 cow moose um, that were collared that died over the course of the study. And the leading cause of death in both the study areas was predation, either wolves or uh, from bears, which people are going to say, well, that's not a surprise. However, what was very interesting in that study area uh, since 2016 is that on average, the annual survival rates were actually very high, upwards of 90 to 94% in some of the study areas. And the number of calves that were born and survived, even though they varied by year and by study, uh, study area, the annual population growth rates were actually very positive, the researcher said, and they feel now that the moose population is either stable or increasing. So I guess kind of the lesson here is, is you can have a leading cause of death of adult moose um, by predation, wolves or bears, but other factors that are taking place across the population that are actually leading to the increased survival of the calves can then overcome those predation rates and actually stabilize or help a population grow. So there's always this balance between what impact predators are having on a moose population and how successful recruitment of calves into that population are, because that's how a population grows by adding more moose to the population. So calf survival is incredibly important. So um, kind of a good news story, I think, in northern BC um, to see moose populations in an area that suffered, you know, such a large decline um, to actually now looking like they're stabilizing or, or increasing. Recently, there was a court ruling um, in Canada, uh, Supreme Court of Canada ruled on a case that uh, started, I think, back in 2010. So there was an Indigenous man from the Colville Confederated Tribes in Washington State, came into British Columbia, shot an elk, um, in the Arrow Lakes region of, of Southern BC, called the conservation officers. Um, he was charged and the, the case went to court. And recently the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that there's kind of a couple things going on here. So, so the reason that the hunter did this is that he was part of an indigenous nation called the Sinaiaks. And the Sinaiaks territory was partly in Washington, but mostly in British Columbia, in the Arrow Lakes and Okanagan region of BC. The federal government of Canada does not recognize Sinaiaks people in Canada as still actually existing. They actually said the people have gone extinct. Where in Washington State, they're not. And 
they felt they still had rights and should still be recognized in Canada as a distinct Indigenous people. So to sort of challenge Canada's declaration of calling their people, the Sinaiaks people being an extinct Indigenous um, community, um, this fella came up from the States, hunted, pressed the whole thing, um, and so recently the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Indigenous people who are not Canadian citizens and to do not live in Canada can have constitutionally protected rights in Canada if they belong to Indigenous groups that are modern-day successors of once, ones that once occupied territory in Canada. So basically that ruling, um, it appears that Indigenous people in the United States, and this will apply clear across the country, whose territories overlap into Canada, that our Constitution, Section 35 of the Canada Constitution, which gives, uh, affirms Indigenous people, Aboriginal people of Canada, the right to hunt um, in Canada, um, as they so choose within their traditional practices, um, now actually applies to Indigenous people that don't live in the country. So it's very possible that Indigenous people, um, I don't know what they'll have to do to demonstrate it, um, may freely be allowed to come into Canada um, to hunt in any of the provinces where they're people's territories. It doesn't work the other direction. Um, in the United States, Indigenous and Aboriginal people don't have constitutional rights to hunt in the United States. It's not enshrined in their constitution like Section 35 is in the Canadian constitution. So Canadian Indigenous people, from what I understand, can't go to the U.S. and hunt if their territories overlapped into the U.S., they would, I believe, have to be actually U.S. citizens and, and maybe actually live in the United States to have, to have those rights under, under um, treaties. So it's a landmark decision of uh, Indigenous rights in North America, really. And it's the first time that a court has actually made a ruling, as far as I know, where Indigenous people... Uh, outside the country have rights to hunt in Canada. So you probably uh, all heard about the movie on Netflix called Seaspiracy, uh, which became very controversial, picked apart by the scientific community for its uh, lack of facts. It was digging into basically the whole issue of overfishing uh, in the ocean and kind of a call to action for people to stop eating seafood in order to save the ocean um, sort of thing. So the organization that created the film uh, on their social media account, Seaspiracy, they put out a campaign um, shortly after that film came out about stopping the Canadian seal hunt. And there was quite a bit of controversy developed around that by a member of the Inuit community, I believe she was actually from Alaska, um, that sort of was challenging what was going on in Seaspiracy's call to end the seal hunt. And 
uh, some of the stuff I read on social media, she said that uh, like thousands of people had gone on and signed the cease piracy uh, petition to end Canadian seal hunting. And uh, on her social media, um, she said that, uh, that the people that have signed this petition are not understanding the impact that it has on Inuit. And yes, commercial fishing is a problem, but Inuit should not be grouped into that. And she went on to explain that uh, as a result, poverty, the high cost of groceries in uh, the Arctic, the limited availability, uh, access to healthy foods that Inuit people across the Arctic uh, into Alaska as well, Greenland, you know, all, everywhere in the Arctic, rely on traditional ways of hunting as a means to survive. Um, and given that it's, you know, extremely harsh climates and that non-natives don't understand that, she said, and so it was pretty interesting that she really challenged um, the sea spiracy people over this um, lack of awareness of the importance of seal hunting to Inuit culture, uh, traditional ways and, and access to food. And so they actually, uh, the sea spirey Instagram account actually pulled uh, all of that stuff off of their account and kind of issued uh you know, what you might want to call like an, an apology saying that they didn't, you know, intend for that to, uh, to mean, uh, uh, Inuit hunters. So, um, kind of interesting thing happening there. There is a huge tree planting program, um, that's set to take place here this spring in British Columbia in the central interior, um, talking, they're talking about planting 300 million, you know, seedlings. And even with COVID going on, there's been a whole bunch of stuff put in place where tree planters from all across Canada, way over to Ontario and Quebec are going to be traveling into the BC interior, um, here this spring, if they're not already here during the midst of the pandemic to be planting trees. Uh, probably most of that is in the uh, impacted um, regions of the interior from the forest fires a couple of summers ago. So one of the things about tree planting, uh, don't know whether you're aware of this, um, tree planting after forest fires or after logging is not actually necessary. The forests actually regenerate themselves perfectly fine. They're used to these disturbances. It's what they're adapted to do is to recover from major disturbances, primarily wildfires. The reason we actually plant trees in forestry, um, it may have like a feel-good social moral obligation sort of thing, but the primary reason that it's done is it's done to support the high rate of cut that is approved for the province. So every five years, the allowable annual cut, how much timber can be harvested from the various areas of the province is established by the chief forester. In the entire process of determining how much timber can be supplied, there's a whole bunch of things goes into it. But one of the things that goes into the modeling is how quickly a forest goes from sort of ground zero to a stand of trees that can be logged again. The faster that a forest can grow to a harvestable size, which is called the rotation, 
the model allows a higher rate of cut of new forest right now, knowing that you're regenerating and, and bringing on merchantable, commercially harvestable trees faster. And the way that that is done is by planting. So by planting trees, they're actually accelerating the time that it would take nature to recover from a major disturbance like a wildfire or a clear cut. So nature has successional patterns after disturbances of periods of grass and shrubs and deciduous trees like birch and, and um, aspen and then slowly conifer trees start to establish and there's this whole gradual succession period of restoring the damage to the land and gradually developing different types of forests working towards you know, a, a time in the future where the conifer forest, spruce, pine, what have you, uh, fir, become the dominant tree species in the forest again. So nature takes a little longer to do that. So in order to ensure that we can log our forest today at a very high rate of cut, we actually plant trees because we speed up nature by getting to that crop of conifer trees faster than what nature does it. One of the greatest impacts that this has besides the rate of logging is artificially um, high is that it affects wildlife. Because a lot of wildlife from birds all the way through to moose are adapted to these early periods of, of vegetation growth after a fire, after logging. It's called early cereal or pioneer communities. The grasses, the shrubs, the herbs, and the deciduous trees, willows, alders, birch, uh, aspen, all the way from seed-eating birds and insect-eating birds up to moose, rely heavily on those periods in which the forest fires or logged areas exist in those states because that's where a tremendous amount of the food source is for these animals. Once the forests become fully stocked conifer forests where the crowns start to close over, the light on the forest floor starts to diminish, a lot of these plants die out and the forests become much more simple. Um, some may actually even just become monocultures and the effectiveness of the habitat um, to support a wide range of species actually diminishes. So that's one of the impacts of tree planting is it, is it takes away wildlife habitat. It accelerates the time or decreases the time that the habitat is in this state that is very beneficial to wildlife in the province and it quickly gets it to a closed canopy conifer forest which a tremendous amount of these species um, can't utilize as well. So tree planting, even though it's always touted as being this good thing, we're restoring the forest, climate change, all this sort of thing, um, doing it at an unnatural or accelerated uh, rate in order to log more uh, each year is probably not a sustainable way to manage forestry and wildlife in the province. 
uh, coyotes down in Stanley Park uh, are still kind of wreaking havoc on people down there. I think I covered this a couple episodes ago. A uh, couple more people have been bitten. There was a, uh, uh, an incident where a man uh, driving an electric scooter ran into a coyote on one of the trails, crashed, and then the coyote pounced on him and started started biting him. And it's not funny. I mean, he's been attacked by a, uh, a wild animal, but there's obviously a very healthy coyote population in Stanley Park. There's good habitat, um, uh, but there's a lot of confrontation with people. Uh, I don't know whether or not the Conservation Officer Service is cordoning areas off in Stanley Park and trapping the coyotes, or whether this is going to be one of those things where people are going to try to coexist with them. The last episode I talked about um, some of the studies that have been done on urban coyotes versus wildlife, uh, wildland coyotes and how much more diseases and stress and parasites that urban coyotes carry compared to their their uh, cousins that are living out in the wild. So it's definitely not a good situation for potentially more um, diseased and parasite carrying coyotes uh, living in Stanley Park to be continually biting people. Um, it's not going to lead to something good. So they're probably going to need to get rid of coyotes out of Stanley Park. So and uh, another court case um, involving a Vancouver Islands First Nation, um, British Columbia Supreme Court ruled uh, on a case that was origin- originally launched back in 2003. Uh, 2018, um, the ruling was brought out by a um, British Columbia um, judge that said that Indigenous people on the coast um, fishing uh, had their constitutional rights to fish, but the ruling limited the type of vessels that they could use in the commercial fishing, uh, their, their commercial fish, uh, fishery. And the, the judge said, um, that the constitutional right to fish commercial fishing for indigenous people, uh, she interpreted that to mean as non-exclusive, small scale, artificial, local multi-species fisheries using small, low-cost boats with limited technology and catching power. And that's what a judge ruled back in 2018 that Indigenous people in their commercial fisheries weren't allowed to use very sophisticated boats or technology. So that a Vancouver Island First Nations challenged that um, and like a long time ago and it just how slow things take to get through the courts. But um, a uh, BC Court of Appeal judge uh, recently ruled that sort of that original finding in 2018 limiting the type of commercial fishing vessels that Indigenous people could use was in error. And uh, that ruling said that the limitations the judge placed on the levels of technology and the types of vessel that could be used do not take into account the need to allow Aboriginal rights to evolve to meet modern conditions and requirements. So as I understand it, that that um, appeal court judgment will then allow um, the Vancouver Island First Nations to upgrade the types of vessels and technology that they use um, for their commercial fisheries, uh, of which they have the rights to harvest and sell salmon, uh, groundfish, crab, and prawns. 
So while in British Columbia, there was an announcement just a little while ago. The government has upped uh, or injected $83 million over the next three years into the BC Parks budget. Now, while people's initial reaction, my interpretation of people's initial reaction to this is people were excited. BC Parks got $83 million over the next three years. I think when people think about BC Parks getting money, they're thinking about stuff that's going to be done to protect the environment, to protect fish, to protect wildlife, to um, conserve wildlife habitat. As far as I can tell, that's not what this budget is aimed at. This budget is aimed at making more space for people to go out and camp, more trails, expanded campsites. Um, I think they're adding 185 camping sites in 2021 and more trails um, to uh, right up to a fully serviced campground just outside Vancouver, a 90 site campground. Um, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society said that that announcement is huge. You know, $83 million is over the next three years just to expand campsites and infrastructure. I get it. It's important for people to be able to go camping and have fully serviced campgrounds and water and Wi-Fi and all this kind of stuff to experience the outdoors. But I come back to my earlier statement about how dismal the budget for natural resource management, conservation, and wildlife management is in the province and for $83 million to be prioritized for infrastructure for humans camping. I get it. It's important to people. It's nice to see people out there doing this stuff. But I also kind of think, man, when times are tough and you got to make decisions about where to put limited amounts of money, I really think $83 million probably could have been used way more beneficial endangered caribou recovery. Uh, I think we're in a time in British Columbia with the declining biodiversity, loss of habitat, declining fish and wildlife populations all over the province that people are going to have to be willing to do without and to have more money put into conservation and species recovery. Or people are going to be out camping and there's going to be nothing out there for them to look at. In Alberta, um, some elders... Uh, and trappers from one of the First Nations in Northern Alberta, um, the Little Red Cree Nation in Northern Alberta, has have kind of got together and they're urging the province to protect um, the Wabasca wood buffalo herd in Northern Alberta. The Wabasca bison population is at very low levels uh, and they're at risk of local extinction or extirpation, uh, which it is properly referred to. And so these elders and these trappers are actually calling on the government uh, of Alberta, Minister of Environment Jason Nixon, to immediately implement actions to end unregulated hunting of this bison herd. 
and what that means when they say unregulated or unlicensed hunting in Canada, that's actually referring to Indigenous people that have a constitutional right to hunt. And so I find it quite interesting here um, that it's actually elders and trappers within the nation themselves that are actually calling on the government to prohibit Indigenous constitutional hunters from from being able to take um, bison out of this endangered um, buffalo herd. So I have not heard what the outcomes of that uh, would be, but I mean, just another to me, an example of, you know, hunters and trappers and stuff, no matter where they are in this country or what culture they come from, standing up and putting wildlife first, um, especially in these areas where they might have rights um, to hunt or fish, uh, but actually standing up for the resource itself, for the wildlife itself. So it's uh, definitely a story that's echoed across Canada in both Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities of people standing up saying we need to do better. And in some of those cases, we need to stop harvesting and we need to stop fishing. Over in Cape Breton, in Nova Scotia, seals have been washing up on the shores with no heads. I remember uh, last year on the coast of BC, there were sea lions washing up on the shores of eastern Vancouver Island um, with no heads. And from what I understood on that one is they think the sea lions were actually being killed and, and deliberately beheaded um, by humans. Apparently uh, there was an uh, incident where one was filmed uh, actually cutting the head off one of these sea lions. Apparently the skulls of these giant sea lions are worth thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, and the only way to obtain one if you're a collector is if they're harvested by uh, and an indigenous hunter on the coast of BC. But this issue in Cape Breton of these these seals, so seals, not sea lions, um, it's about two dozen seals so far that have been discovered, scattered all along the shores uh, with no heads. Uh, I guess it happened last year in April as well. Um, some seals, some dead seals were washed up around the Cape Breton and Sambro Shores area uh, missing their heads and there's no conclusive evidence of why uh, it's not exactly clear that it's being done by humans um, so it's postulated that um, seals are being crushed in moving sea ice packs and somehow that's shearing their heads off and leaving their bodies intact that's been kind of um, thought to be sort of like less probable. Um, sharks have also been um, suggested as being one of the causes. But uh, from what I was reading, apparently the the uh, uh, people that have investigated this said it's pretty clear it doesn't appear to be humans doing it. So uh, completely, completely bizarre situation of seals with no heads washing up. So I uh, don't know what it is. To me, it almost sounds like a shark thing, but uh, I don't know. Staying over in uh, eastern Canada in Nova Scotia, uh, I didn't know about this, but there is a commercial fishery 
that's done in Nova Scotia rivers, or I think one, one river, uh, there's nine license holders. They harvest about 9,000 kilograms a year of baby eels. They're called elvers. And they sell their live. They sell them to Asian markets that then turn around and grow these baby eels into adult eels. And then they harvest them for food. So in 2020, DFO, Department of Fisheries and Oceans in Canada, saw a five-fold increase in the number of these baby eels, elvers, that were being caught. And what they've been noticing is that the increase in Indigenous fishermen going on to the Nova Scotia rivers um, has really shot up. Uh, apparently in 2019, there were 21 fishers, and in 2020, there was 110 Indigenous fishers um, fishing for these elvers on various Nova Scotia rivers. And so DFO actually shut the fisheries down last year, the elvers fisheries, uh, including the nine licensed holders. In 2019, this fishery was estimated to be worth $38 million, the commercial fishery on these baby eels. So under federal law, indigenous fishers are allowed to fish them, but it's only for food, social, or ceremonial purposes. And apparently they're not allowed to sell or not supposed to sell these elvers, these baby eels. And DFO, uh, from what I understand, is looking at closing down this eel fishery again this year. Um, they said in a statement that this level of fishing, in addition to the commercial fisheries, has become unmanageable and represents a threat to the conservation of the species. So thrown into this as well is, um, from what I understand, is people, they don't know whether, like who it is or where they come from, that are just illegally fishing these, these baby eels because they're worth so much uh, on the Asian markets. Um, so I assume they're being like shipped overseas when they say Asian markets are actually being shipped to Asian countries. The... Uh, um, Chief of uh, Mi'kmaq, uh, Mike Sack, was saying that he believes that the indigenous fishery for the elvers falls under the Mi'kmaq treaty rights to earn a moderate livelihood. And we talked about that on previous episodes about um, the lobster fishery in Nova Scotia. And um, so his interpretation is that the elvers fall under that same right to make um, for the Mi'kmaq people to... Uh, earn a moderate livelihood to fish these elvers and sell them. Uh, and the chief said if there's a conservation issue with the baby eels or with the eel populations in the Nova Scotia rivers, it's the commercial harvesters that should be cut first and not the indigenous fishermen. A uh, study that uh, was recently published in the Journal of Nutritional Science that was looking at lead fragments in game meat, so game that was shot with lead ammunition. And they found that if you take your meat and it has lead molecules still in it, and sometimes they are molecules, the lead fragments are actually stuff that's so, so small we don't actually know that it's in the meat. And you marinate your meat before cooking it in a wine and vinegar 
based type marinade and then cook it, that that acidic condition increases the bioavailability of lead that's in the meat. So the ability of your body to take up lead and have it get into your bloodstream and, in, and, and affect your nerves and all sorts of things uh, increases with marination. So the study concluded that the bioavailability of lead was 2.7% when the game meat was just cooked. But if the game meat was marinated before it was cooked, the bioavailability of lead in that meat shot up to 15%. So that's probably another good piece of scientific evidence that kind of supports the notion of switching over to non-lead ammunition. And as you know, the Hunter Conservationist podcast that Curtis and I are a supporting uh, member of the non-lead partnership, a North American-wide uh, hunter-led initiative to promote the voluntary increase in the use of non-lead ammunition in hunting. So there's another little uh, tidbit for you if you're looking for some reasons to switch out to non-lead. Seems to be a good thing to do. Back on the story of the Department of Fisheries and Oceans um, on the west coast of BC, they have once again imposed very strict regulations on the Chinook salmon fishery coming up for 2021 in order to protect endangered southern resident killer whales off the coast of BC. Uh, and it's got a lot of people um, concerned who like to catch um, Chinook, either for livelihood or for food purposes. And from what I understand, that the DFO uh, restrictions on Chinook are going to include hatchery Chinook as well, uh, which was kind of always the thing if there was a conservation concern on a wild salmon that fishers were allowed to take hatchery salmon. They could tell by the um, adipose fin being clipped off or one of the pectoral fins or something like that. Um, but apparently this closure is going to be an area-based closure put in place for the southern resident killer whale, key, their key foraging areas. And it will apply to recreational commercial fisheries for all species of salmon. Um, these measures are to reduce noise and physical disturbance from vessels and only pertain to specific areas of the coast. And like I said, apparently that includes wild and hatchery Chinook salmon. So there's a study just got published by some scientists from the University of Kansas who were actually up in northern British Columbia and southern Alaska actually doing some DNA work on a weasel. So for the last 300,000 years, there's been a weasel that's been isolated on Haida Gwaii and Prince of Wales Island in southeast Alaska that has been disconnected for 300,000 years from weasels on the mainland coastal areas. And through this new study, looking at DNA and the morphology being the physical structure of the weasel, they've actually determined that the weasel is a new species um, that exists on Haida Gwaii and Prince of Wales Island in Southeast Alaska. So uh, kind of interesting there as well. So Haida Gwaii was actually not covered by the ice 
when the uh, last ice age, when it pushed down and covered all of Canada and um, Alaska and everything, Haida Gwaii was actually ice-free. And so it's got this amazing history of um, isolated species on Haida Gwaii, plants and animals um, that actually persisted there uh, during the ice age. And when the uh, glaciers receded, um, ended up being by the ocean, um, Hecate Strait were cut off from the mainland and actually developed uh, quite a few unique species uh, on the archipelagos, Haida Gwaii area off BC's west coast. Jumping down to the United States, this story kind of popped up uh, uh, a little while ago, actually, where researchers have been finding black bears in California that are really exhibiting weird behaviors. They're very friendly towards people, uh, almost dog-like in their friendly nature, and they walk with their head tilted to the side something's wrong with them, some sort of neurological um, um, problem. You know, when uh, when some, some, and an animal's got like a head tilt or a head droop or the drooling, which is characteristic of like chronic wasting disease in deer. So they've, they've euthanized and studied a few of these bears and, and found that they have encephalitis and it's causing a swelling in the brain. Uh, scientists are actually thinking that the disease could actually be coming from ticks. So kind of scary when, you know, we're talking about uh, the dangers of chronic wasting disease and how it's spreading uh, throughout ungulate populations in North America. And now there's this little thing kind of popping up with black bears down in California. Um, Hopefully it's not as transmissible or as widespread as chronic wasting disease, but uh, something to kind of keep your eye on, I guess. Overly friendly bears, um, usually young, uh, not in good shape, walking with a head tilt, uh, could be a sign of encephalitis in their brain. On the enforcement uh, side of things, I kind of like to keep track of things that conservation officers across the country are are doing to kind of protect fish, wildlife, and habitat. Uh, RCMP seized a 30-foot fishing vessel um, off the coast of BC, confiscated 26 Chinook salmon, 18 rock fish, fillets, eight ling cod, and 10 bags of salmon roe that weighed about 24 kilograms. Um, Those was a recent, uh, that was in 2019. And so those people that were involved in um, overfishing uh, pled guilty uh, to their charges. That was in 2019. And they have forfeited their boats, engine, fishing licenses, and all other property that was on the boat at the time they were caught with all those illegal fish. Also in British Columbia, there were three men fined $11,000 for killing four moose uh, in BC Southern Interior in 2017. One of the individuals that was charged um, is banned from uh, hunting for two years and as well as the the um, the fines. So what these individuals were doing is they were shooting moose and other using other hunters tags, uh, which is illegal. Um, shooting moose um, not on your tag is is against the law shooting more moose and using the tags over again. 
So those are a couple of things. Uh, get on conservation officers out there hammering people that are that are poaching. In Manitoba, um, late this winter, there was a really tragic incident where a lady was out walking her dog and little dog, and it got caught in a trap, a conibear trap that was uh, set um, by a property owner who was uh, apparently, I guess, trying to protect uh, chickens from coyotes that were coming in. So this trap was set on the edge of their property or just off their property, I'm not sure. And unfortunately, this uh, uh, lady's poor dog got caught in it. She couldn't open the conibear trap. Um, the dog wasn't killed instantly. It was a really horrible situation. So there's been a petition um, launched in uh, Manitoba that's calling for a ban on all body-gripping traps, including the conibear throughout the entire province. Uh, I don't know if you're really familiar with trapping, but the conibear trap is a incredibly powerful trap that's sort of become sort of one of the main traps that are used in the fur trapping industry that aren't like gripping the animal by its foot. They're actually designed to close down typically around the neck uh, and throat of the animal when the conibear trap is properly sized and put in a, in a set for the right size animal. They're what's called killing traps. They're instantaneously um, killing the animal uh, for humane, uh, humane reasons. So these setting these traps in Manitoba is actually legal uh, for a property owner to do it uh, within city limits in residential uh, neighborhoods as well. And that's partly what's uh, precipitated this call for banning the use of conibear traps throughout the entire province, which I think is not the right thing to do. Um, you know, as tragic as what this situation was, it's still a humane ethical tool for the licensed trappers making their living from fur trapping in Manitoba to be using conibears, uh, conibear traps. And so it's an unfortunate situation. Um, I spoke to a representative from the Manito Manitoba Trappers Association just to try to kind of figure out a little bit more maybe what this story was about. And so the incident took place outside the city of Winnipeg, um, but within the perimeter highway that circles the city. Um, it's illegal for a licensed trapper to commercially trap in that area, the inner perimeter around the city of Winnipeg. Um, but a property owner is allowed to trap in what's called defensive property. So what it appears that this landowner set this trap because of coyotes coming after uh, his chickens and property concerns for the safety of grandchildren and, and, and the chickens and stuff. He's not a commercial trapper um, and they're legally allowed to do that uh, within this non-commercial trapping zone around the city of Winnipeg. So in defense of property trapping in Manitoba, there's no requirements or, or regulations on what type of traps are used in the defense of property legislation. So the trap that was used that killed this, this poor pet dog was a Conibear 330, which is the size of the trap. 
and it's actually a trap that's not recommended for coyotes. It would not be um, fall within the um, standards uh, for coyotes under the Agreement on International Humane Trapping Standards, uh, which Canada is a signator to. So a commercial trapper would not have used a 330 bear trap to try to catch a coyote. Um, because that's a standard, a trapping standard based on an international agreement that Canada subscribes to. So commercial trappers adhere to that. Uh, however, uh, from what I understand, under this defensive property legislation in Manitoba, uh, they are not. And so what happened here was an undersized uh, trap was used. You know, I probably wouldn't have made the difference of what happened to the dog, maybe other than it would have been killed instantly rather than, than um, uh, slowly um, dying in front of uh, its owner. But anyways, it's uh, a very unfortunate situation. It's led to this uh, call for a provincial ban on conibear traps, which I said as tragic as what this was for this pet uh, and this um, pet owner for the long-term humane ethical treatment of wild animals in commercial trapping, we have to continue to allow commercial trappers to use the most humane traps that are out there, uh, which are the conibear. So I hope that that doesn't go anywhere in Manitoba, but I will keep you informed. Some of the previous episodes I've been talking about um, the fish farms that uh, <clears throat> are on the coast of uh, BC, how there was a decision, an announcement made in December of last year by fish, Federal Fisheries Minister to phase out ocean-based fish farms uh, but by July 2020. And in that decision, the federal minister said that no new fish could be transferred to the fish farms in the Discovery Islands area off the coast of BC during the interim period uh, that would take place between now and July 20, uh, 2022 when the government would decide on a case-by-case -case basis what would happen to each one of the fish farms. So in January of this year, several of those fish farms applied for a judicial review um, challenging that minister's decision uh, to face out uh, the fish farms on Discovery Island and restrict the transfer of live fish to those fish farms during that phase-out period. So the court um, heard this case and determined that the license holders of the fish farms would suffer about a $26 million loss, layoffs of about 78 people, loss of contracts, if it was forced to cull a million salmon smolts in their rearing facilities and not be allowed to transfer those smolts to the open pens on the Discovery Island farms. And so a federal court judge um, has suspended the minister's ban uh, on restocking the three fish farms uh, off the BC coast. So it sounds like between now and July 20, uh, 2022, the owners of these ocean-based fish farms are going to be continued to allow to take the salmon smolts from their rearing facilities out and continue to raise them in the ocean, which of course um, conservationists and indigenous people are very upset about because the, the whole issue of parasites, disease, sea lice, and everything and that's coming with these fish farms, 
that are impacting the wild salmon stocks is still going to continue, even though the federal minister tried um, and made this announcement to phase out these fish farms. On Sunday, April 25th, there was a helicopter crash in Nunavut territory. And in that crash, um, Marcus Dick, a Canadian polar bear researcher with the federal government, along with helicopter engineer Benton Davey and pilot Stephen Page, all died. It was a really tragic event. Um, these are individuals out there studying the very things that we all love, wildlife, fish, habitat, monitoring what's going on out there, trying to bring back science to make the best informed policy decisions on everything from conservation right through to what we're allowed to hunt and fish is based on what pilots and engineers and flight crew and biologists and researchers are doing for us. Every year somewhere in North America, there seems to be a story of an aviation crash, fixed wing or helicopter that claims the lives of biologists and aviation crew that are out there implementing science, studying wildlife, studying the land. And I just want to take a moment and have you reflect on this, that the things that we love, there are people literally putting their lives on the line and losing their lives for conservation, for fish, for wildlife, for habitat. And even though there's a lot of problems in Canada with conservation, wildlife populations, hunting and fishing being curtailed, uh, losing opportunities because of dwindling populations, a lot of times frustration and criticism gets levied against the very biologists that are out there trying to collect information on these things. And I just want to reflect on a moment that, um, you know, I think we need to give thanks to our biologists and our pilots and the crews that keep them up in the air safe for doing what they do because they are putting their lives on the line. They are paying with their lives so that we can better understand these species and continue to enjoy them no matter how we enjoy them across the country. So to these three individuals, on uh, behalf of us here at the Hunter Conservationist, um, Curtis and myself, thank you. We honor you for what you're doing. And to all the biologists out there that might be listening to this or hunter conservationists or angler conservationists, if you have a chance to give your local biologist to say, hey, Thanks for getting in that helicopter. Thanks for flying that flight. Thanks for being the pilot, for getting them back safe. Thanks to the engineers that keep those aircraft in top shape so they can be out there doing these things. If you have a chance to say thanks to any or all of them close to where you live, please do so. All right, everybody, you're up to what's going on around Canada, and we will see you in the next episode.